So, uh, this is our 10th session of the Stafford Beer Brain of the Firm reading group uh, with General Intellect Unit. Um, and we are on Chapter 10. Uh, probably getting into the next section, we're going to break from the one um, session, one chapter cadence we've been on. Uh, because the chapters are going to start to get longer. Um, and so we're going to need to do multiple sessions per chapter. Uh, but uh, for this chapter, we're going to do the same thing unless it runs really long. Uh, all right. So um, chapter 10 is the biggest switch. And uh, we are going to just take a look at what Beer says um, at the beginning of the section about it. In the final chapter of this part, the need for a system four is disclosed. Systems one, two, and three are concerned automatically with the regulation of internal stability, but the organism needs also to maintain dynamic equilibrium with the external world. More than that, if the challenge of change and increasing complexity discussed in part one is to be met, there must be systems for arousal and adaptation. All this is modeled by the brain before the level of conscious direction attributable to the board of the firm and to the cerebral cortex in the brain is reached. That final level, system five, is reserved for discussion later. Uh, in part two, cybernetics is put to work to create a model of the management of any viable system. There are passages of fairly tough going as the nature and implications of some of the neurophysiology are elucidated. But remember that once the issues are properly understood, there will be no real need to remember all the details. Uh, so we have largely gone through uh, the neuro neurophysiological background information. Um, we are just going to cover uh, the build up to system four and the sort of we're going to work off of the background that we've built up here. Uh, so what are some uh, general thoughts about chapter 10? Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yep. Um, one thing that kind of stood out to me was um, getting towards the back of the chapter when we're talking about uh, phase spaces and trajectories and such. Um, it kind of defines, it defines the system as um, like a, a kind of an island in a phase space. It's, a, it's an island in which the states, when they deviate, tend to return to that island, um, which is really fascinating because it means that like particular implementations, such as bodies and such, uh, have nothing to do with it. Um, uh, these kinds of systems are abstract systems that have this like uh, um, locality within a phase space, not necessarily locality in space, in, in, in space. Um, which is like the stuff that we were reading in the uh, extended autopoiesis paper, making the distinction between like making the distinction of like the body and being a tool that the system uses to help maintain its phase space. It's not like the, the body is not primarily identified with the system. The, the body is a kind of artifact produced by the system. Um, it's really it's just really interesting that that's right there in beer. It's almost like the you don't need to puzzle about it very much. It's just it's just right there in that in that chapter. Right. Fair enough. Um... So, uh, Shane, your connection is quite bad today, so you might want to do an Audacity recording um, just so that we can add that in when okay. uh, we produce the final version. Um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, so we'll get to that figure and the discussion at the end of the chapter, uh, but that is an interesting point um, that... Yeah, this is a generalizable cybernetic phenomenon. Um, and the body constitutes itself along these principles. Um, okay, any other uh, comments? Uh, okay, Rudy, uh, please go ahead. Yeah, I commented about this in the chats earlier, but I think this chapter as a general gives you the what Jeremy said a few sessions back of why system four was so important. And if you don't have a good system four and system five, it just wanders off or can collapse onto system three. And how, you know, this biggest switch 
is critical. And I think this chapter puts it down very, very well. Uh, sorry. And Lauren, go ahead. Um, yeah, I said like just ripping off of that. I thought it was really interesting. This chapter ended with an example on an epidemic, <laughs> because I think the whole chapter is thinking about how these systems relate to like crises management that we're all experiencing in various forms through our various governments. And it's really interesting to sort of use all of that as examples to think about when reading this chapter, because some people have coped quite well with crisis management and some people haven't. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, there were some Canadian examples that came to mind in this chapter uh, for me, which uh, maybe I'll bring up later. Um, because I think, you know, this is where for me, the stuff like the, the book is starting to get the most interesting because we're, um, talking about adaptation to a dynamic environment, um, and about sort of mode switching in systems. Um, and you know, this is, this is really interesting stuff. Uh, okay, so let's uh, move on then. Um, so we have, uh, I'll just go over the intro. Uh, we have arrived at the point where the internal stability of the organism is ensured by the three lowest level systems. A control apparatus summed up as far as this is concerned by the term autonomics. And we have seen how this set of systems is fed by a vertical command structure originating intentions as distinct from reflex responses within the thinking chamber of System 5. The final part of this book will deal with that fifth-level global operation of the corporate body. This leaves the problem of System 4, which is the greatest linking mechanism between volitional and autonomic control. It is the biggest switch of the whole organization. A switch is a device or whole mechanism which transfers signals from one part of the system to the other. We have already met many switches in both the physiological and managerial aspects of this book. They are not simple flick-over devices, such as those which operate the electric light, in either of these contexts. We examine their nature rather carefully in Part 1 and called them algodonodes. At that time, we were looking at artifacts made up of wood and brass strips. Now we are ready to pick up the story in terms of neurophysiology. The many receptors which activate the nervous system, like the receptors which notify machines, men, and managers of change, are themselves switches of some kind. These receptors are attached to some sort of input cable, which they make alert, or along which they propagate a signal. When this cable length runs out, the input signal would be extinguished if it were not switched into another cable length. As we have seen, the neurons in the body work like this, passing the signal on from one nerve cell, plus its cable length, the axon, to another at a synapse. We need to look a little more closely at this switch gear. Engineers and computer men may think of a switch as a device which passes on and very likely amplifies the signal. That is, the arriving signal excites the system beyond the switch. In the body, this happens too, but the second possibility arises that the signal will inhibit rather than excite. This is an extremely important mechanism because of the problem of overloading, which would otherwise clog all the channels and switches further on. Much earlier, we saw that the theorems of information theory require greater capacity in the channels than the variety of the input system. In the body, this law is obeyed. Indeed, there is ample provision to meet the point. The maximum rate of discharge of receptor organs lies in the bracket of a 100 to 200 pulses a second. But the nerve channels themselves can cope with 3 to 400. Even then, we cannot afford to excite the entire nervous system with every input. Thus, whenever data transmission occurs in the nervous system, there is a dual mechanism in which excitation is balanced against inhibition rather than a single firing device, as might be supposed. The same is certainly true in management, where more input signals may well be extinguished than are transferred and amplified at any switch, but it would be a mistake to think of this as a go-no-go -no -go device. 
There is a more subtle mechanism here, as there was in the Algada node. Okay, so there are some interesting points here. Uh, first of all, uh, this is we are not speaking here of an on-off switch, right? This is not an on-off switch. Uh, it is it it is an Algada node, which uh, Beer describes in the back of the book in the glossary. Um, as an algodonically modulated probabilistic switch. That is, algodonic information is used at this node to alter the probability that something, which could otherwise be decided either analytically or by chance, will happen. So it's kind of a dynamic probabilistic switch, um, as opposed to the rather static on-off switches uh, that we're used to from light light switches. Um, the other thing that comes up here um, is that the uh, beer reminds us that um, a channel functioning in this way needs uh, more. So a greater capacity in the channel than the variety of the input system. So I think this is really important when we consider organizational design as well. Um, <clears throat> and then, uh, yeah, so uh, any further comments about this, this section? Uh, Jake, please go ahead. Jake H. Yeah, um, I guess just like a question of, like, I had sort of thought of the different systems as, like, basically being made of people. But is System 4 supposed to be made of people? Because it kind of sounds, I, I mean, I know he's it's not describing, like, a fully mechanistic in the sense that it's, like, a machine. But, like, it sounds like more like a mechanistic, like, when X happens, do Y. And that obviously involves, like, a whole set of algorithms and, and all that stuff. But... Is that what System 4 is, or is it like... Um, so, I think a useful way to think about this is that uh, in the first section of the book, we moved from a simple circuit diagram to the anastomotic reticulum. And as we're going to see later in this chapter, um, System 4 is a switch... But it's a switch that takes in a huge number of inputs. Um, and it's, it's, uh, probabilistic dynamism is actually determined by a lot of different inputs. So it's not simply a, uh, like a control loop that you would see in programming where it's like, if, if X, then do for whatever. Uh, it, it's, it's actually something very dynamic and you can think of people per, uh, performing this role uh, because they're really like monitoring a lot of different information that's coming in and switching on that basis uh, rather than just it just being kind of like a really simple uh, control mechanism. Uh, so uh, any any further comments on this stuff? Uh, sorry, does that help? at all explain this? I think there's going to be some more examples later down the line that might help clarify, like, why this is more than just a mechanical switch that we're talking about here. Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely, like, I definitely got that it wasn't just, like, a mechanical switch. Like, I sort of had a conception of what neurons, how neurons operated and stuff before all this, and so it fits pretty neatly into that right. in terms of my own framework, but... Um, um, yeah, I guess just seeing some examples probably later might might help con concretize it a bit. Right. And remember, with all this stuff, like, it doesn't have to be a one-person, one-role kind of deal. Like, each person can be performing System 4 functions in the organization. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's not so neatly divided up like that. Um, right. Maybe and maybe this is like a side effect of like computers getting a lot better, but it's like why couldn't we have like 
some sort of neural networks or mm-hmm. something that takes in all these different inputs and like outputs something that could be used by another by system five or or maybe that is just being used by system four or something. I don't know. Yeah, there, there's no specific reason why a computer couldn't do that, um, because like as Shane was mentioning earlier in the chapter, like these are sort of generalized cybernetic principles and they're not bound to any particular organism. Uh, Matt, please go ahead. Yeah, uh, so, so th- th- this this is jumping ahead a, a little bit, but um, uh, um, yeah, th- uh, for for like system for like how people need to get involved, like uh, um, yeah, uh, uh, I think like like people actually do be, be, because um, you know, you're kind of inherently dealing with something new, and you know, like um, you know, machine learning systems as they exist actually aren't very good at that. What 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 the interaction is, and and it's cool because he. You know, he basically describes, you know, uh, an anomaly detection system a little bit later in the chapter, which is like a huge thing. Well, like that's one of the things you'll see, you know, companies advertising they want you to build. And uh, uh, but the thing is, you know, an anomaly detection system just, you know, uh, it, it can mechanistically say that something is weird. But like then that that uh, that triggers then, you know, humans actually need to pay attention to this. Yeah. So I think it's kind of a matter of like, in principle, there could be a software solution for this. But actually, humans are very good at dealing with those sort of things, given the right context. Um, okay, uh, let's let's move on, and we'll dig into the sort of implications a little bit more uh, later. Um, so um, we get into the physiology of the synapse. Um, you know, this is. It's a little bit in the weeds here. I, I wouldn't say it's in the weeds, but it's it's just details. Um, so, uh, okay, right. We get into the digression about the synapse. Um, so, I think he says um, on page 137, here is an algodonode par excellence. It is analogous to the managerial switch, which provides a go-no-go answer but whose decision is governed by a conflicting set of excitatory and inhibitory inputs and a threshold value which is variable. It is not analogous, however, to any formal management information system, computerized or not, that I have ever seen. But it should be. Groups of human managers work in just this way. So this idea that um, the decision criterion for go no go should be uh the result of multiple excitatory or inhibitory inputs um and that it should have a variable uh threshold value is not formalized in most of our or in i don't know any management system i've still heard of uh but it does describe the way that managers actually work so, Lauren, you're giving an example about this uh, when we were talking the other day. I thought it was pretty good. Uh, could you describe that? And then we'll go to Jeremy. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, I, what did I, I'm trying to remember exactly what I said. Um, I uh, used to work in a company that, like, sort of, as consultants do, you bid on projects that requires a go-no-go decision to because you don't want to waste your time writing proposals that you're not going to win. Um, and we kind of did try to mechanize a go no go decision to some extent um, through uh, using various factors like do we know the client is it an, in a country we've worked in before is it in our area of expertise um, and and that kind of thing and at the end of the day that that process ended up just being an onboarding document for like teaching people these this is how it works this is kind of like how we make decisions around here for pursuing proposals um and in actuality what happened was uh the sort of like directors and senior managers would receive uh notices for opportunities and would then like my old boss used to just go like, well, I really want to go on a holiday to Vietnam and this project's in Vietnam. So well, I guess we'll go for this project. Um, or in other cases, uh, decisions were made to pursue a project out of spite <laughs> because the CEO said we shouldn't do this. And then my boss would say, oh, but I hate the CEO and I really want to like rebel as this 
like a small child <laughs> and uh, would pursue uh, work in spite of um, CD direction. And I definitely saw that sort of the messiness that goes on with making those decisions like at a person level and all of like the other um, and more informal incentives for pursuing proposals uh, influence decisions. Is that what we were referring to, Kyle? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like uh, the drift from the formal definition and the actual decision procedure Mm. is just enormous Um, because like the your boss was taking account of factors that are just like way beyond the scope of that uh, decision document. Um, Yeah. So like, you know, yeah, we're going to do a contract in Afghanistan because I'm going to piss off my boss uh, is, is, is a consideration that they they definitely didn't have on the list. Um, oh, OK, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's go to Jeremy and then Brett. I, you know, beer in this book comes up with two very different descriptions of system four and superimposing them is confusing as hell. And. I, I don't think the two things are wrong because Beer is writing this. He's telling us what he thinks about his model, but they're very different from each other. And I find in practice, it's very difficult to superimpose them on a thing. They seem like different things. Like one of them is the mechanism that trans forms an autonomic system into a volitional system. And, you know, the cliche example I have that you see in the movies all the time is some C-level executive who's absolutely impenetrable, who has a secretary or a personal assistant that they totally trust And the only way you get to talk to this executive is to win over the PA or the secretary to the point where they're convinced that it's okay for you to interrupt that person or to barge into their office. And then you do. And um, that's definitely something of what's going on. Although beer is full of piss takes of how ridiculous it is to have C-level executives the way we currently do. So I would see him as seeing that as kind of a comical example. But then later in the book, System 4 is an internal model of the entire system that's used to speculate on what it could be through taking in data and R&D and planning and all that kind of stuff. So the one idea that it is the switch that switches you from autonomic to volitional is the description in this chapter. And the description in a later chapter is this is where R&D and dreaming about the future and all that takes place that needs a homeostat to bolt it to system three so that it keeps its feet on the ground. And I've got to admit, this is my third time reading it, and I'm just as confused as I've always been on those two different descriptions for the same thing. Yeah. So um, I think for me, at least this makes the most sense in terms of the final example beer gives of um, adaptation in response to Ashby um, where, yeah, those two dimensions that you described seem to come together uh, but we might talk about that a little bit more, uh, at the end of the chapter. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a very interesting point because the second definition of system four that you gave is the one that I'm more familiar with. Uh, Brett, please go ahead. And then Shane. Yeah. So, um, I'm, so like, I'm, I do software development. I do, um, DevOps stuff, uh, as I think I mentioned before, and Lauren's comments reminds me of, Maybe think about this at a micro level. Maybe this is not the right level to think about it. Of like a CD system where literally someone has to hit the button to say here deploy, but also you can have that automated. I'm not sure if that's the right metaphor or not thinking of it because I think there's system four is more complex than that. But that's all I. I, I mean, this theme through this in that way helped me sort of visualize like you can actually have a gate where you can just have the computer just 
ship it and see what happens. And sometimes that, that go no go is more complex than oh this might have a bug in it, but we're going to ship it anyway. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, that seems like a good example uh, for sure because uh, I mean, yeah, like it's a consideration that's probably uh, taking into account the external environment as well, like your clients or whatever, uh, what their needs are, what the status of their operations is, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, uh, Sheen, uh, go ahead. Yep. Um, just picking up on what Jeremy was saying, I think I agree that like it seems that System 4 is kind of overloaded a little bit. And I think Beer does sort of admit that early on that it's quite a complex area of the brain and seems to involve multiple machines that are all kind of mutually involved with each other in ways that are kind of hard to hard to really reason about. But also, um, I kind of wonder if some of this apparent problem is that System 4 stands in the place that I think would be occupied by something like the unconscious or the subconscious in um, psychological terms. And I think, you know, as, as, you know, not amazing as a lot of psychology and psychoanalysis is, at the very least it has tried to grapple with the apparent like multiplicitous nature of the unconscious like it, it does seem like there are many different factors all colliding with each other like there's the organism's model of the world there's the organism's engagement with the world via desire there's memory and recording there seems to be these symbol chains all seem to bounce off each other in strange ways and i kind of wonder if system four could be disaggregated a little bit and it, it could turn out to be not a single switch, but a cluster of switches that, you know, m maybe maybe the psychology folks or the cognitive behavioral folks are on on perhaps the right track there, or like the neuropsychology, that kind of crossover point to be worth exploring to see if there's, maybe there's structure inside systems that we can talk about. That's a very fair point. Um, I've been listening to a lot of um, pragmatic buddhist stuff lately um at my advisor's suggestion um and the some of that stuff is like directly relevant to things that beer brings up in this chapter but uh just thinking about that um very deliberate consideration of subconscious dimensions of experience uh, I think you're probably right. There could be some disaggregation that happens there because that's a lot of what Buddhist psychology does. Um, uh, all right. Um, Steve, go ahead. Um, yeah. Hey guys. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, that's an interesting framing chain. And I, I, it was, it was hard not to read this and feel like the system four was just some homunculus here where we're just pushing all the complexity into this one big unit. Um, and like, that's not really actionable in any meaningful way too. And like, you know, one thing that sort of on, on the robotic side, like what we struggle with a lot when, when I'm particularly sensitive to is that like everybody loves to do their research for one little problem. Um, you know, whether that's motion planning or grasping or, you know, AI or higher or higher level reasoning and planning. But like the biggest challenge that we always have to face that everybody just wants to sweep under the rug is that you have a massive integration task for pulling all of these different pieces together in ways that they can possibly actually communicate with each other in any sort of viable way. And, you know, it's all the stuff that goes unreported and unrecorded in the papers because the papers will give you the math. And then, you know, the, the code that you might get out of it will be full of all sorts of hacks and ways that break the math that are in the papers. And nobody wants to talk about that. And nobody wants to talk about how, like, there's a massive gap here that uh, that is in many ways the actual problem. Um because the the theory doesn't work when you start putting everything together. And like, I just couldn't help think about thinking about that with system four, because like it's where the rubber hits the road and it, the complexity of getting not only lots of systems, but lots of different systems that are supposed to be talking different languages and having their own goals and priorities working together. Like it doesn't, there's nothing to take from that other than we've just pushed the problem down <laughs> into something else. And, you know, I don't know, like maybe that's the rest of the book. Right. But, um, but that was, that was my takeaway from that. And it just resonated with like, yeah, are we just the same problem here? We still don't really know how to pull all this stuff together in any sort of meaningful way. Right. Right. 
so it, it like it's really black boxing the issue um in a lot of ways uh i think there's probably some things we can take away from this that will be useful but your point is very well taken um and uh yeah okay so we'll go to jake and then matt <clears throat> yeah apologies this isn't a direct response to what steve just said but um i have a question that fundamentally it's supposed to be that every viable system has every single one of these systems right by virtue of being viable um my question is just like why does every viable system necessarily need like an outside and then and a or like a volitional characteristic could a viable system not also just be purely reactive as well um i think we need to consider this in terms of degrees of viability uh when we looked at the earlier example that beer gave about why he decided to choose the human body as an example and not something else um he said that you know animal ecosystems display some of these characteristics but they tend to be very swingy um be or like ecosystems tend to be very swingy uh and i gave that example of like you know uh what was it the algae forming on rocks killing off most of life on earth um uh in an earlier age earlier geologic age um so the answer i think again we're going to see in that that ashby example at the end of this chapter but essentially you can have a viable system that has no volitional component within a rather static environment um but if you have a dynamic environment your system is going to be a lot more viable if you do have a developed system for um so uh you know there are ways you can kind of get around that like say if you're a bacteria or something you have maybe just such a large number of specimens that uh, there's enough variety there to deal with the environment, even without a volitional component. Um, but uh, in terms of more complex organisms, it, it's something that pays off to have, even if it's not strictly necessary. Um, you know, because like, as you said, the first three systems are really kind of like the bedrock of viability. And if you have those, then you can have in a given environment a viable system. Um uh matt go ahead yeah i'm a a four kind of reminded me of uh, um uh and uh, what, what what steve was saying about it uh, reminded me of um uh douglas hofstadter and uh and yeah and uh and you wrote this in the 70s but i mean uh but as far as i know like it's it's still right you know uh he says in gerdella sherbach that you know like we can create all these little task-based like systems but we, but what what human intelligence can do that you know machine intelligence you know really still can't in any meaningful way is like uh decide to get good at a new task you know and switch between tasks in ways that you know uh you know a uh you know keeps you know uh, uh keeps the system like doing what it's supposed to do you know the the, the idea of, of being able to get bored or um uh, uh you know divert your attention to something new uh and intelligent and switch between tasks yeah like that thing is still you know like uh and i, I don't even know what we can do for that aside from it even just like recognizing it as a separate capacity and one that you know machines aren't really you know, don't really know how to do right now yeah yeah, I mean, we could definitely see that behavior in more intelligent birds. Um, it's not strictly human, uh, but uh, that is um, very restricted uh, in what kinds of organisms can 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 do that kind of behavior. Uh, Rudy, go ahead. Yeah, a bit to echo the comment here. It seems like you know, beer is telling us what should be done, but not how we should go about doing this and in one sense it's good because it's too general but the other sense it's like you know you give a general overview but okay like steve was saying how do i actually build this robot how do i actually build cybersyn so that it works and i find that after a while frustrating i must say yeah it's very legit uh <laughs> i do know like of course the rest of the book is going to get to more practical organizational design. But as Jeremy was saying, 
you know, this is not necessarily a solved problem in the text. Um, so big problem if it is not. Uh, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, I'm, uh, as um, as the yeah, the the, uh, yeah, the the closest thing to, to like a real solution I can think of is like um uh, uh, um variety absorbers like uh, uh like the uh, information desk in, in designing freedom where you know you, you have a bunch of different departments then you know you you have like an actual desk where you know uh, other you know people can like ask direct questions and because we do have humans as components in the system like we don't actually have to fully formalize it you know like we can actually say well you know humans have this capacity you know you have like a, an office you have a special projects division or you know you have ARPA actually you know uh, ARPA slash DARPA interestingly enough like it's a uh, it's um its mandate is specifically to prevent strategic surprise it was created right after Sputnik. And so, like, I don't like it. Seems to work pretty well. Uh, I read a good book on DARPA um, inside the Pentagon's brain. Maybe, uh, maybe that can be a thing. Uh, absolutely, we can use humans for this. Um, uh, Lauren, please go ahead. Yeah, well, I, I think this this discussion sort of made me realize that um, when I read beer, I'm still this book. I, I pun um, like. I use all the misfortune I've had being in very dysfunctional organizations to make sense of what's going on. And I, I, I kind of feel like I, I still see the, where he's pulling in buy-in from people like me or managers who are like, everything's on fire in fact. <laughs> um, and I think like Ashby's model, which we'll get to later in this chapter, really helped crystallize a lot of the previous chapters um, because Ashby's model, I was like, oh my God, I, like this explains literally every breakdown I've had in every organization. Um, and so I, I kind of feel like we're still at that point of like, here's everything is wrong. And then, yeah, I think as I get the feeling, the next chapters will give more of those like nuanced tools and suggestions for, for how to like mess up everything. That's just my two cents. <laughs> yeah, I think that example is really crucial. Um, and also, I think we're exhibiting a bit of the behavior that Beer described at the beginning of the book where this is the chapter, these are the chapters about eating your vegetables, and then you get what you actually came to the book for in the final section. Uh, so we are kind of participating in this system exactly as Beer predicted um, we would. But, uh, you know, that doesn't mean all the answers are going to be down the road. So, well, perhaps we can see this in a positive light of like, taking our frustration and channeling it into a critical reading of what's going to come in the next section. Uh, Shane, go ahead. One, one very quick remark uh, before we move on, but um, I think there are, there are like um, concrete kind of recommendations, or I think we can relate this to concrete organizational problems. Like uh, the whole notion that these, this massive like multi-switch requires um, like multiple and like conflicting inputs and needs the ability to like dynamically resolve these things and, and feed them all together and do all this kind of stuff. It means that like, um, you, you can't do Leninism, like Bolshevism is straight out the fucking window, like the, the ban on factions, the like ultra centralization, the, the purges and stuff like catastrophically bad. Uh, it, like the, the Bolsheviks lobotomized themselves in doing that. So I think, I think we can, I think it's it, it, there are um, there are sort of recommendations we can take away from this. Like you need diversity and variety, and like sensory and processing variety in these higher in these kind of like higher meta levels of the system. Otherwise, you're just going to be a kind of brainless zombie, which is what the Bolshevik stuff turned out to be in the end. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's a good point. Uh, I think. The the point about the channel having uh, more capacity than the input variety is also a really useful point for designing um, organizations. And there's going to be some more that come down the, the down the road here uh, as we keep reading. So let's let's do that. Let's let's move on and, and have a little bit more uh, to to digest. Um, so uh, he's he talks about. Um, so he says, we, we speak about selective changes depending on conditions in the locality of particular neurons or particular management groups in applying our cybernetic model at this level. And there are more general, possibly quite general, ways known to the body and to the firm for changing the activity of the nervous system, upwards to excitability or downwards in depression. 
The hormones themselves and the transmitter substances are hormones uh, may be supplied more or less plentifully. But drugs, especially of every kind, have elevating and depressing effects. These are easily recognized in behavior, but they are initiated on a micro scale precisely by intervention at the switches. They are threshold changes of the algodonode. Nicotine, for example, is a ganglionic stimulating drug and smokers enjoy the excitatory effects. But as with so many physiological mechanisms, the picture is very complicated. This is basically because the pharmacological effect of drugs varies on different parts of the nervous system, and because simultaneous changes in threshold in all manner of physiological switches often produce a total effect which works in a contrary direction. See how this works with nicotine, and bear in mind the counterpart mechanism in human groups. Uh, nicotine excites the sympathetic cardiac ganglia and paralyzes the parasympathetic component to produce the typical rise in heart rate that smokers know. But in another phase, it may stimulate the parasympathetic and paralyze the sympathetic to produce a slowing effect in nicotine poisoning and perhaps in death. Threshold complex networks, dosages, all affect the situation, and this is why it is so difficult to prescribe treatment to correct elation or depression in patients who so show either symptom to excess. Uh, what is meant by another phase in the penultimate sentence is perhaps best understood by considering alcohol. Uh, and then we get the alcohol example that I brought up in a previous discussion of like the up or downer effect. Um, where you're you're depressing the inhibitory response, so you get an up feeling. Um, so this is this is quite interesting. You know, when we think about the um, prescription of like antidepressants, right? Um, it's kind of like we sort of know what these drugs do. We don't really know what the localized effect is going to be on your nervous system. So take this dose for a couple weeks. We'll see what happens. You'll answer a survey, and then the doctor's going to make a decision with the patient as to whether uh, to increase the dosage and continue or to um, try a different uh, drug, right? Uh, because we just don't know what the specific effect is going to be uh, because the, the because of localized effects. Um, so that's that's quite interesting. Uh, Matt, go ahead. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, so on the antidepressants and uh, and the paradoxical effects um, uh, uh, thing with alcohol, you know, it, it also has one because uh, um, something that's way too common is actually that uh, people will actually you know get get on, go on antidepressants and like as they're starting to work, that's when they'll actually kill themselves because now they actually have motivation. Like, right? It gives them the motivation to carry through with a. Uh, suicidal volition um so that's you know quite tragic um uh i i certainly was very frightened uh uh going on to antidepressants for those sorts of reasons um uh because it's it's like well what's the aggregate effect going to be on my psychology even if these particular effects are fairly well known um fortunately there was really no no side effects uh, that in my case. Um, okay. Uh, but I, I do think that the volitional component and its interaction with uh, the lower systems in the body is very uh, interesting to consider when we think about like these kind of pharmacological effects. Cause like, um, you know, there's uh, overdosing, which is something that involves volition uh, and the overall uh, physiological state, uh, but it's actually producing these kinds of contradictory um, effects that Beer's describing, right? Like with the nicotine overdose, where it, it switches over from being excitatory uh, to actually being inhibitory to the point of death. Uh, but you can think about other drugs that where that similar uh, effect can occur. Um, okay. So, uh, in general, the activity of the whole body may be excited by pharmacological intervention at the switchgear so that people become excited or more excited or positively euphoric. 
Beyond that state come tremors and then convulsions. Alternatively, depressant drugs bring sedation or tranquility or trance, and beyond that state, a general anesthesia and then coma. Death may result in either case at the end of the line, and that would be quite explicitly because the interference is so gross that the stabilizing mechanisms already discussed can no longer work. This is the way that the basic switchgear operates. As was said just now, it represents a set of mechanisms which we understand how to copy, witness the algodonode, and which is copied rather closely in human decision-taking, especially by the social group. Yet, it is not reduplicated in automotive systems driven by computers, although that would be perfectly possible. What may not yet be possible, and this is something to which we ought to be alert, is to understand, yet alone reduplicate, physiological control mechanisms, which are not straightforwardly mediated by the nervous system as described. Um, he talks about ESP here, and how ESP could never really be ESP. Uh, it's always just going to be a phenomenon created by a sense we don't understand yet. Because if it's not sensory... If it's extrasensory, then how is it an input? Uh, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, it's a poor description of the phenomenon. Uh, and he goes into sort of discussions about, like, uh, pheromones and, uh, you know, smell. We, we think about, like, the people who lose their sense of taste and then have trouble bonding with people. Um, uh, th that kind of phenomena. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, I think it was about this point, by the mid middle of page 139, that I was starting to think, yeah, this the the, the deep unconscious needs to be accounted for here. That like, because it, it, beer does talk about learning, but like, um, the thing like you get from looking at the psychology and psychoanalysis and stuff is that the the volitional subject emerges after enduring this ex very long process of learning how to engage with the world um and it, that that kind of becomes more clear if you like raise a child and actually watch this happen you can see a subject emerge that has volition it's not a pre-given thing like you can't just count on it being there um and like I mean, even with the rats here like a lot of this could be pheromones or, or it could be pheromones plus learned behavior and in in a like kind of inextricable mix um so i think it, it this stuff is definitely involved here, and I think we kind of need to look a bit more closely at these like subconscious. Like, I mean, yeah, he says like it's it's not it's not ESP, like, but it is it is something beyond normal volition and normal sensing into a weird combinatorial uh, sort of processing procedure. Yeah, I mean, ESP is basically like a pre-scientific description of the phenomenon. Like, it's it's basically hand waving. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, Matt, go ahead. Uh, a, a, a quick aside to, uh, on uh, um, hearing him talk about like ESP. It is wild how you know how that that, that that was like a thing that people were seriously considering in like the, the first half of the century. Uh, I, I, I read a, a, a Turing's like original like AI paper, and he actually like addresses it. I was like, oh man, like how do I design it uh, to, to make sure that like someone with ESP can't cheat? Because uh, man, the statistical evidence for ESP is just uh, you know it's just overwhelming. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, it it was given a lot of serious consideration, um, and it, I think like most of the things we see from the mid century with like really out there uh, psychological exploration, there's like areas where the backlash against it was probably excessive. Like you think about psychedelics research and how like that's finally coming back into uh being studied uh after it was discredited by its use by like the CIA and stuff and just kind of general uh ex expansion into drug culture um so you know it's uh it, it, i i think beer's point here is well taken but you know we should consider um probably not the overwhelming statistical evidence for ESP, but just like actual phenomena that we may be able to study in ways that weren't possible in the past. Uh, Lauren, go ahead. Yeah, well, I, I'd be curious to get other folks' thoughts on this, because I, coming from a psych background, I and having dwelled on this these paragraphs together, um, I kind of feel like what he's really digging at, like, is like sort of coping mechanisms, because like, drugs and alcohol and that kind of thing like are frequently used like coping mechanisms for people and i if you want to acknowledge if you want to bring it back to like management 
um, there are, I hate to analogize, <laughs> we're not meant to analogize, but there are analogies for uh, like similar things being used in businesses as coping mechanisms. And it's one thing to say, oh, I, I see this as an, unhe- an, an, eh, an unhealthy coping mechanism, but I'm doing it anyway. And then having done very similar things in firms where, uh, say, like, uh, I also use consulting management, <laughs> that's my background, but like frequently there would be discussions around, okay, we keep doing this. We keep um, trying to write proposals. Uh, we overstress ourselves. We work too long. We um, keep doing these things that are really harmful to the people in our um, organization, and yet we can't break out of that cycle. <laughs> and so I, I, I wonder if the kind of like that's what's kind of like being alluded to. And <laughs> in, in I, I think that's how it makes sense in this. This conversation anyway sort of bring the physiology back to the business um yeah i i think this does get to something you're we're going to see a little bit later in the chapter which is about the way that the system four can initiate uh like system-wide um step changes um in in behavior uh and you can think about like okay let's put the organization into uh, retreat to uh, do a self-diagnostic and try to come up with solutions to all these problems as a kind of step change in that way. Uh, it is a kind of like, you know, is is kind of analogous to uh, taking a drug as a coping mechanism in order to induce a sort of drastically different physiological state. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, we then have this uh, discussion about the uh, rats. Um, I'm interested to kind of see if anyone has attempted to queer this research and uh, uh, break down the, the gender descriptions being provided here. Um, I may still hold up uh, in the face of that kind of scrutiny, but I wonder if like STS people, queer studies people have, have sort of like looked at this kind of thing. Um, uh, Matt, go ahead. Um, uh, so yeah, for, for, for the rat stuff, I mean, like this is still, you know, uh, uh, I mean, minimally it was still being taught when, when I was doing psych courses um, uh, in like the, 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 the late aughts. Um, uh, um, and though, uh, interestingly enough, um, so we have still not found any human pheromones, like, uh, like they've been trying to find them, but, you know, and I mean, th- that doesn't mean they don't exist, but, uh, um, you know, uh, yeah, that's weird. Okay. Yeah. That is pretty weird. Um, <laughs> that is, that is pretty wild. Uh, uh, yeah, there, there is so much of this stuff like in neuropsych that is really frontier research and is treated as being way more stable than it actually is. Um, uh, yeah, Lauren, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think this um, paragraph really uh, underlined my general discomfort with like uh, this book because it is very divergent from where queer studies are going, where there's a conscious decoupling of like identity, expression, and body. And this really feels like it's trying to pull all those things back together and to put it into like a body. <laughs> and so like it kind of has this like undercurrents of gender essentialism or like identity essentialism where like you have these fixed components that make you <laughs> as a, as an entity, as a unit, as a being. And that's fixed. <laughs> and I, I don't really have anything more to comment about that paragraph, but yeah, it, it kind of gave some clarity on where like kind of modern social like psych is diverging from um, these kinds of ideas, I guess, for over the past like 20 plus years. Well, I, I think we can read the possibility of sort of like being, bringing in bio truths by um, making reference to the human body as an example of a viable system or sort of the paradigm example of, the, of a viable system and relying on physiology so heavily. Uh, but I kind of feel like the opposite tendency is also evident in that it's trying to abstract to sort of cybernetic principles that are disembodied. Um, so I do kind of see this sort of research as like a bit of a precursor to like Haraway. Um, it's just... 
we like it's that problem of analogizing right like making tendentious analogies is a problem and worth a lot of critical scrutiny uh but i don't i don't think it's it's a purely one way or the other thing like i think both tendencies are evident in the text um and uh yeah that's sort of social psych or uh this this tendency to like disaggregate from the body it can see some background in in this kind of text here um but you know a lot of people have commented on how the heart of the enterprise is a very gender essentialist text in some ways so you're not off the mark in that regard at all um uh okay uh matt let's let's uh and then jeremy uh, yeah, so, so uh, I think uh, you know you can have a more granular like view of gender and still you know what like uh, um have this stuff because I mean you know well like like gender is just like a it's you know it's a low resolution representation you know it's the eight bit version but like you know you you can separate out you know okay like uh, you know some of the things that we'll put into you know like this gender of rat are you know like the traits to produce the this this pheromone that you know um, uh, produces this quality but you know like obviously not all the male rats are gonna have that and all the female rats are gonna have the uh, um you know uh, or you know the 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 the, 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 one, the one the ones that are uh, put into those bins are gonna have all those traits like yeah you can still you know can still be flexible just that he's just chunking it. Yeah, I mean, we can think about gender as a variety reducer that is uh, quite dysfunctional. Um, uh, <laughs> it it does it does uh, have uh, sort of um, practical utility as a as a as a variety attenuator, uh, but it also causes a lot of harmful effects. Um, uh, okay, uh, Jeremy, uh, let's go on. So I talked to Elena Leonard about the sexism in some of uh, Beer's texts, especially Heart of, The Heart of Enterprise. And she was like, yep, that book is sexist. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? She didn't, she, she, she didn't equivocate at all. She was like, yeah. And she was like, you know, Stafford really started to tackle feminism more seriously in the 90s. And that if you look at his last books, he's using S slash H-E for pronouns most of the time, which I think by 90s standards is fairly gender neutral. You know, I mean, I we wouldn't use S slash H-E today, but if you put it in the history of like 1994, for someone from the greatest generation, it's not bad that he was convinced to use more inclusive pronouns. Um, and it's something we need to deal with in reading beer is that he just absorbed the sexism of his time. And it took him really towards the end of his life to begin to interrogate that in any way at all. Um, another part of it that makes it hard is that the heart of enterprise is written with the voice of a 1970s businessman. And he's very clearly sending up that character. Like a lot of the heart of enterprise is satire and you don't realize it till the end. So you think he's being serious, but the voice he's using is a send up. But because you don't realize it, it's not very funny. You know what I mean? I mean, I guess it's funny in retrospect to some degree. But yeah, Elena was the first person to be like, yep, yeah, this shit is sexist, you know? Right. So um, I think uh, it's it's pretty clear that like uh, Beer was a fairly progressive thinker, but basically lagged behind the the feminist thinking of his time um and yeah s slash he was the 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 woke way to write in the 90s that's correct uh and also like um you know i know people who refuse to use anything other than he is pronouns in like 2018 <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so I mean, 
to be fair, Stafford had a lot of mentees, did a lot of mentorship, and was very, very progressive in having uh, female mentees who I met, who I talked to about what Stafford was like as a mentor. And he was incredibly generous to them, even in circumstances where there was institutionalized sexism, that he helped them break through with his authority within the institution. So it's more complicated than just his narrative voice, you know? Right. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, that's, that's also good to consider. Um, so there's a lot of layers to this. Uh, I think we're going to get into more of it as we continue through the book, um, but it's definitely worth uh, interrogating um, and, and considering the, the entire biographical picture as well as what we see in this text. 